Hello. This is more my style. I, I'm trying to figure out like how to be me here, and I like to sit in front of people because I don't like towering over them because I feel weird. So I hope you're okay with this today. First of all, I want I was going to show um, something. I borrowed this from my son Drew. But I don't know if you have crazy dreams at night. I do. Like sometimes I wake up and I tell my husband Dan, like, you are not gonna believe what I dreamed last night. Some of them, like, I'm like, I'm never telling anybody because they were that weird and that off. But I feel like to have a dream where you have a sheet. I grab one of Drew's sheets and I have these kind of critters coming down from heaven in a sheet. I grab Mr. Krabs. I grabbed. An alligator, I grabbed Donald Duck, he's a bird, I grabbed a monkey, I grabbed, oh, this is fun, I grabbed Cookie Monster. Can you imagine having a dream like that? You would wake up and you'd be like, what did I eat last night? What was going on? And I think that God often uses the times in our life where we are sleeping, you know, we're, we're not able to control what we think about or what we do when we're sleeping, and we are completely disarmed. You know, I, I think too, like when, um, when people come to me in, in the therapy room and they're like, they want to talk about their dreams. Dreams also um, mean unfinished business. We say that in, in therapy, that sometimes our dreams are the unfinished business that our life is trying to work out and we can't do it when we're awake. But then when we're sleeping, um, our brain is, is not able to to push it away or, or whatnot. But I think it's interesting how God used Peter's dream and, and a trance in the middle of the day. And scripture says it was like he kind of zoned out in a way. And he had this dream, and it was with a sheet and all kinds of animals that he would have never eaten, but it represented so much more. And that brings us to the mission of, um, of our story. So I was just going to ask you to think about, have you ever been on a mission before? Um, this past week, I met with one of my friends, Jennifer, who we've been friends since we were four years old, and she is serving as a missionary in northern Iraq right now. Um, and she's been, I don't know, I saw Chris's eyebrows go up, because when she told me, and I found out she was leaving Chicago, she's had quite a journey, but when I found out that God was calling her to northern Iraq, I felt like checking in with her and being like, are you sure? Are you certain you heard from God that that is where you are supposed to go? Um, she was a NICU nurse in Chicago and started serving a Korean church and in, in children and youth ministry, women's ministry. And then all of a sudden, like she's like, Harry, God is calling me to northern Iraq. She was she went with, a, with another couple from the church, and I and I felt convicted because I was like, Are you sure? And she's like, Yes. And she's been there for twelve years, and she was just back. But she used this word this past week that connected with what I wanted to talk with you today about is she talked about being on mission. And, and I thought about like how she perceives living life right now is on mission. She is serving God. And I thought about, do I think of myself every day as being on mission? That said, I thought about the word being on a mission before, and I thought about mission trips, other things, but the first thing that came to mind was my parents. I thought about the times where I knew they were on a mission to get me. I had done something wrong, 
or they were finding me to clean or do chores. They were getting my siblings and I to go somewhere we didn't want to go or had something they wanted to talk with us about. I knew when they were coming right for me because there was determination to their step. They had a look in their eyes and usually it was a beeline going right for myself or my siblings. I'm sure you know this or you do this to your own children. I thought about my kids would say they, I know they would have very many examples of this for me right now. I also thought about these guys, Elwood and Jake Blues. I think we have a picture of them. Anybody know these guys? Um, I was going to try to pull up the video, but it's like every video they have like a cigarette in their hands and like a drink or something. I'm like, I don't think this is appropriate for church, but we got that. Um, and I, my husband Dan used to have a shirt too. It says on a mission for God. It had them on it. But I thought about these guys too. And here's the quote from their movie. It's 106 miles to Chicago. We got a full tank of gas, half a pack of cigarettes. It's dark and we're wearing sunglasses. And solemnly intoning those words, Elwood Blues and his recently paroled brother Jake, who I think was Jim, was it Jim or James Belushi? Jim. I always forget the one who died. Jim Belushi. He set off in a decommissioned police car looking like G-men in pork pie hats rather than what they really were. They were down and out blues musicians trying to put their band back together to raise money to save the orphanage where they were raised. And the Blues Brothers were on a mission for God. So when we think about how this translates to what we're talking about at New City is our um, transformed our series that we've been working through for Acts and Transform Mission for the Church. Last week we talked about the why for church and how transformation transforms why we do what we do. I've been thinking about that Simon Sinek video that I showed you, you all last week. Um, and, and it's really resonated, like why gives us purpose? Why unites us? His comment of how when he was kind of in a crisis of why um, he was alone, he didn't know why he was doing what he was doing. He talked about as a leader, he had lost his why. And then coming full circle to knowing the why, and then how he said that there's, now that he knows the why, there's a thousand on his right and a thousand on his left. And the thousand to the right and left really connected with me, thinking spiritually. To think about all of us who love Jesus, and we're transformed by his love, loving each other, and working together side by side, empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's the most beautiful thing I can imagine in this life. And so does, how does this connect with us then for scripture today, thinking about Cornelius and Peter and transformed mission? So as we go to scripture, scripture is where we, we, um, we rest in and then we go out from. So we, we think about the who, it's Peter and Cornelius. Peter is a Jewish man. We have a Gentile man, a rural fisherman and a Roman soldier. You don't get much different than that. And what happened? God used normal circumstances. Peter's hanging out at his friend's home, waiting for dinner. And Cornelius is praying at the usual time. And God brings two people and their associates who normally would never have been in any proximity of, of closeness together or conversation or even like being in the same household together. And when it happens on a warm, sunny day and the common factors, they're both praying and seeking God. We have some clues that Cornelius was a God-fearing man. It seems that as a Gentile, he was, he was seeking out the God of the people of Israel. And he was, he was giving. He was known as being you know, good and righteous but he was outside of God's people because he was a Gentile, he was a non-Jew. And we have the where and the when God knew where each of them were located, and I love that God isn't bound by our location. He met them where they were, Peter at his friend's home, Cornelius in his home, and God used a vision for each of them to get their attention, and he used an angelic messenger nonetheless. And they both end up going on unplanned missions that day. 
After the vision and angelic messenger event occurred, First Cornelius sends people he trusts to go find out more. And, and I think in the commentary, it was really interesting how it noted that it was entrusted people. It was probably, probably God-seekers themselves among Cornelius, and they weren't like other soldiers that you would normally just have them go do whatever for your, your, um, your professional job. It was people that were close to him and were like-minded. And he sends them to go find out as Peter explained in the vision, too, later on, that Jewish people were not allowed to associate with non-Jewish people, except for God giving him a heads up when the vision was occurring that it said, okay, notice in Scripture it says, Peter, do not hesitate to go with them. Normally, Peter had been like, um, no, there's a bunch of gates in front of me that tell me why three things in front say, no, 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 I can't be with you, but God says, do not hesitate. The food connection God used for Peter was a nice touch, too, as the food represented unclean things Jewish people were not supposed to eat, much less touch. I, I thought it was kind of fun grabbing Mr. Krabs because, you know, shellfish, big no. I don't know if you've done this at the state fair. Alligator, big no. Um, monkey, another big no. I did grab a cow, Minecraft cow. That would be okay. But mostly it was like all things that were not okay. And God used that to show him the people also that Peter had heard about and were told about that were not okay were also okay now. And just it would be for Peter to eat those off-the-table foods, which is significant to foods that we even eat now. This is, event is significant as Cornelius is also the first documented Gentile, which is a non-Jewish person, hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and responding to the Holy Spirit. And the evidence of the Holy Spirit being poured out on him and his household, which we'll read about, in front of Jewish followers of Jesus Christ. And remember, they were known as followers of the way. So the story picks up at the very... There's like two parts of this story, which is really also significant. Um, commentators note that when there's like doublets in a story, it's that we have to pay extra attention because it's like details upon details. So we have what happens next. The next day, Peter starts out with them. Some of the believers from Joppa, they go along. They, the following day, they're back in Caesarea. Cornelius is expecting them. He calls together more people. So Peter gets there, and it's not just Cornelius. It's a whole household. And Peter enters, and... They start talking. Peter goes inside, finds a large gathering, and he tells them right up front, you know that we're not supposed to be together, but God is showing me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean, so then I was sent for. And then he says, why am I here? I think about the obedience when we are on mission for God, that sometimes God will, God calls us, and sometimes we like want to check in, like me with my friend Jennifer, like, are you sure you should be in Iraq? Oh, God has called her there, and it's very evident that he has called her, and he's using her in wonderful ways. And Cornelius restates, he goes, three days ago, I'm at my house, I have this vision, this guy in shining clothes comes up, tells me that God's hearing my prayers, and remembering that I'm helping people who are poor, and he says, come find you, and now we're here, and God wants you to tell me something. And so Peter, I, I love this too, Peter doesn't be like, wait, I need to like go prepare my talk, I, I gotta figure out what I'm gonna say. He just opens his mouth and he realizes God doesn't show favoritism. God is including you. Peter connects the dots right away. The, the food coming down, the sheet, all the things he shouldn't eat, and then the guy coming that he shouldn't be with. And this is the most beautiful thing. He relates to mission and purpose and the mind-blowing realization that Jesus is not just for Jewish people. He was not just their Messiah because un until that point they had thought, here is our Messiah. It's all making sense. It's for us. He realizes that Jesus 
was for everyone. He is everyone's Messiah, everyone's Savior. And this, again, the connection for the mission that Jesus clued Nicodemus in in John 3.16, which is the most well-known Bible verse in the world. We see it all the time during football season especially. But the mission is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It wasn't God just loves Israel. It was the world. And that's probably the part that Nicodemus was like, wait, what do you mean the world? Jesus loves the world. He died for the world. He gave for them. He is for them. And this transforming statement that Jesus shared with Nicodemus means that transformation redirected the disciples' mission and reminds us still today that Jesus' transformation redirects our mission in life right now, still 2,000 years later. And my question is, do you know the fine print of the mission that you are on? I've been thinking about New City, too, as I'm, as I'm with you all, the, the fine print of the mission that we are all on. What do we know about God's mission in establishing the church? Why are we here? Why do we take time to gather on Sundays? Why do we show up in small groups? Why do we, why do we make priority to do this? And it's because the church is the body of Christ, a group of people under Christ who represent and reflect him to the world. In 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 13, it says, Just as one body, though one, has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, think about Peter and Cornelius, slave or free, we were all given the one spirit to drink. Even so, the body is not made up of one part but many. So the purpose of the church, which God was helping Peter and Cornelius understand, which, you know, we see all the evidence today, the ripples today where we find ourselves, is that it joins people of different backgrounds and talents and, and, and walks of life to provide them training and opportunities for God's work. Just as God showed Peter and Cornelius then, and it accomplishes this internally within this body and externally in the world now. In Acts 2.42, this is where we really get the internal function of the church. It says that they devoted, and I pause here because devoted means like a commitment. That that's, means that you are... You are making something a priority. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayers. God entrusted his word to the church, the big church. In Ephesians, it says that Christ gave himself, gave, gave the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of God. It's really important to think about, too, that in the covenant church, there's four values to being a pastor that we have to commit to. It's that we, we lead well, we care well, we preach well, and we teach well. It means that we don't just like do one thing really good. We aim as pastors to do all four of those really well. And I will tell you, I don't always do well at all that, but that's what I'm aiming for. It translates to teaching that leads to spiritual maturity, which in turn leads to building up the body of Christ. And that's one of my most primary passions, is that as I allow God to do his work within me and seek him and fill up from him, that I will be used as a pastor to pour out and encourage and uplift and teach and, and guide and help and partner in building together. And it's not done in isolation. That's why we gather together. That's why we do this together. This is why we need to be together. We can't just do Jesus by ourselves. I can't tell you how many times that I catch myself when people are like, I'm good, you know, just me and Jesus at home, I'm good. I'm like, are you really? Because I'm not good, just me and Jesus at home. I need you. We need to be accountable to each other. We need to sharpen each other. 
We need to hold each other accountable. We need to listen to each other, learn from each other. We need to spur each other on. When I was a little girl, I remember learning this. Um, Angie and I were talking about how like, we grew up in Lutheran churches, and this is like a few things I remember in Lutheran church. The organ, and then this. Um, here's, here's the church, or here's the church, here's the steeple. Open the doors and see all the people. Anybody else learn that one? Thank you. Think about that. The church, the purpose of the church isn't a building. That was the whole thing I remember getting from that was, it's the people. We don't gather to provide, just to provide a place to break bad. Often that means that we, we gather, we eat together, we live life together. We experience this best in small group ministry and home groups. Soul Food's an excellent example of how New City is leaning into this really well. I got excited when I heard that you guys did this. I was like, that is awesome, and it's intentional. On Sunday mornings, we also break bread at the Lord's Supper, which we will be doing regularly. So we have a plan of the last Sunday of every month we're going to be having communion together. The Apostle Paul reiterated Jesus' words from the Last Supper in 1 Corinthians 11. He said, For I receive with the Lord what I passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me. And the same way after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do this until the Lord comes. The practice of the Lord's Supper unites us as it reminds us that we are all saved by Jesus' sacrifice, which is another thing to think about is the, the Roman centurion and his people then were enfolded into that as well. They weren't just on the outside anymore. They were united also with the inside, which was really radical. You think about the natural result of healthy and unified Christian churches that, that the members of the church will take care of each other. The most powerful way to care for others is to pray for them, bringing each other's needs before God and, and living life together. Um, through small groups, this is done best. It's another shameless plug of, of how we can um, start helping people that are not in a small group get into a small group this next fall. Um, also calling or emailing and texting like Jamie or Claire or myself, if you need prayer or there's something that you got going on, let us know. Within the church, we're called to show honor to each other, compassion, encouragement, love. We're to meet each other's practical needs. In the book of James, it says that pure religion is when we care for orphans, widows, we make sure people's our needs are met. It's one of the primary purposes of the church is to provide for the needs of its members. And we have needs. It is a humbling thing to ask to say, I need. But it's also the beautiful way that God works and shows his power through each one of us. And then externally, and this is the connection point of Cornelius, the purpose of the church is to fill, fulfill the Great Commission as Jesus commanded us. He said to go, make disciples, baptize, bring in. Don't just keep Jesus as, as your best-kept thing that's only for you. He's for everybody. And we do this to make sure that we faithfully represent him and become who he's called us to be. In Philippians, it says we're supposed to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. And I will tell you, like our world is becoming more crooked and more twisted every day. That's kind of why I'm kind of glad that I have kind of two feet in of like the church on one side and then living in a, in a working in a secular setting because it just reminds me how bad we need Jesus because I see things every day that I'm like, oh my goodness, if you only had Jesus, what your life would be like so much better. As a global church, this is where I feel we are the most off right now. I feel that we have um, kind of like, had any of you read the book The Hobbit? Um, remember in The Hobbit when Dan and I are big like Tolkien fans? 
For his birthday one year, I bought him a membership to the Tolkien Society. Um, I didn't renew it, though. <laughs> Just one done. Um, but I remember in the, in the book The Hobbit, Bilbo and the dwarves, they're on this adventure, you know, to reclaim um, the lonely mountain Erebor and get get the stuff back from the dragon smog. And on their way, they enter Mirkwood. And they're warned by Beor not to lose their way. They're, they're warned, don't become distracted or enchanted because if you drink the water or fall in the water, you're going to become forgetful and not remember what to do. And don't leave the path, which they also do. They do all the things they're not supposed to do. And they get distracted and they wander. And then the spiders almost eat them, and it's terrible. I think about how much right now the church is kind of distracted. I think the church has really, in a lot of ways, lost our, lost our mission. And I'm talking about big church everywhere. Churches are struggling everywhere. And I think about how the devil has used a pandemic and political discord and so many things to distract us from our mission and purpose. We've been distracted um, by sickness, fear of death, fear of sickness. We've been distracted by politics. We've been distracted by just survival, our status, pleasing people, saying the right thing, Worrying what people think of us. Not enough time, not enough money, fear, busyness, our problems, ourselves. Like my friend Taylor says, yada, yada, yada. I'm sure you could add to the list list. But Peter reminds us at the very end of this discussion that he has with Cornelius and all these people at the end of Acts. If you have your Bible, you can turn to it. In Acts chapter 10, he kind of concludes it in this. He says, Peter begins to speak. And in, this is um, 1034, he says, I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. And then going down to verse 42, he says this. He said, make sure I have the right one. 42 to 43, he said, he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So it's twofold. There's no more favoritism. God's for everybody. Jesus is for you. And that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's that simple. So the, the things that I'm, I'm, I've been praying about this week in my own life... Um, is that how am I going to live out the transformed mission that God is giving me? And, and to check those areas where I feel like I'm off or distracted, and also just to pray for boldness, that in those simple conversations God gives to us, that we'll pay attention, that we'll, we'll look for those divine appointments that God gives us every day, and to think about how, how am I going to live a transformed mission this week? And so two, two things, um, two, last two slides of our challenge, I guess. I want you to just think about this week. You all know each other really well in this room, I feel like, probably much better than I know you yet. But how are you going to live out this mission together this week? If you're in small groups, I'd love for you to talk about that. If, if, um, if you have conversations in and out this week, how are you going to do that? How are you going to do that together? How are we going to do that together? And then the next question is, um, how will I live out transform mission in the world this week? What, what is something that God, and you don't have to have your answer now because we're not all like processing this fast, but what is, what is the way that God is going to live out the transformed mission through you this week and how are you going to be obedient to that and do it? So as we look ahead together with those, with those two things, consider joining a small group. Consider going to the girls and guys events coming up. 
Consider the retreat we hope to be offering this fallish. We're still working on the details. Consider writing down names of people to pray for. Consider inviting someone to church this week. Put yourself out there like Peter and Cornelius did, even the people that you think are going to say no or be farthest from God, and build some bridges in Jesus' name. That is my prayer that we will, we will think about that we've been drinking the, the water of Mirkwood and we've been wandering around getting off track and how does God want us to get back on track of the two simple things? Think about Peter. God does not show favoritism but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. Look for those people that are seeking. And then the simple thing is all the prophets testify that everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. It's that simple. If you, if you want to say this prayer with me, to, um, I have a sending prayer for us today, and it's, it's just so simple. It's from the blue book. Um, but if you feel like praying this with me, pray with me. Almighty God, may the transforming power of your gospel be at work in my life today and always. Amen. Amen.